Hi, my name is Audrey, and you are listening to Miles of Murder, a true crime podcast brought to you from the road. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at Miles of Murder, and eventually I will be on TikTok. I'll let you know as soon as that is up and running, but for now, just check out Instagram. There I will post um, case photos, supporting information, as well as posts about my current location and little things like that. All right, so for today's episode, I'm broadcasting from Tate's Hell State Park in North Florida. I treated myself to a little solo trip for some nice secluded nature time, and I cannot express how amazing this spot is. Uh, It's a few miles down a dirt road and then a forest path. It'll put you right out on a river, and I am just seriously obsessed with it. Um, I'll post some images and stuff on Instagram, so make sure that you check those out. Speaking of this week's location, this week's case takes place about 7,000 miles from my current location in Adachi City, Tokyo. To me, this case truly explores the contrast between light and dark that resides in our society, and it shows the world just how depraved certain people can be from childhood. Um, I will provide a content warning, rape, sexual assault, torture, gratuitous violence, kidnapping, and death. Um, Also keep in mind, I'm going to reiterate, I am broadcasting this from the road, from my van, which does include my two dogs, so you might hear them snoring a little bit here and there. I'm also going to do my absolute best to pronounce the names in today's episodes appropriately, so just bear with me. Junko Ferreira was 17 years old, and like most her age, she still lived at home with both of her parents. She was the middle child of their trio of children and her parents' only daughter. By all accounts, Junko was hardworking, goal-oriented, and excited about her future. She worked at a plastic molding factory after school and was saving for a graduation trip she had been looking forward to. Junko's classmates described her as well-liked, popular, and beautiful. With prospects already established when she graduated, it is safe to say that Junko had the world ahead of her, and she was just about to soar. One of the classmates that noticed Junko was Hiroshi Miyano, who at the time was 18 years old. With a notorious anger issue and a lust for violence, it came as no surprise that Junko turned down Hiroshi's advances. Later, Hiroshi would drop out of school flounder doing tile work and resort to theft and robbery to sustain himself. As an active gang member, he often terrorized the town and enjoyed raping the women within it. Yeah, like any child, he didn't play alone. Nobuharo Minato, 16, Yasushi Watanabe, 17, and Joe Agura were friends of Hiroshi's, and the foursome often ran together. The night of November 25th, 1988 was one of those nights. As a hardworking, success-focused Junko, left work and pedaled home on her bike, she came into the crosshairs of Miano and Minato. Miano, leading the pack, instructed Minato to kick Jungo from her bike and flee, setting the stage for Miano to appear to be the savior. In this instance, kindness and humanity were clearly only possible if it was feigned for his benefit. The boys executed their plan, and as expected, a trusting Junko readily accepted Miano's helping hand. As he walked alongside her under the guise of ensuring she got home safe, He slowly veered her off course and lured her to an abandoned warehouse where he raped her for the first time. Changing locations, he brought a terrified and bewildered Junko to a nearby hotel room where he raped her again before calling Minato, Watanabe, and Nagura. The boys had more recently raped, yet released another teen, so this request wasn't out of the ordinary or problematic. It was roughly 3 a.m. by now as Miano led Junko to a park where the three remaining boys were waiting. The group quickly overpowered her and compensated her school bag. Inside was Junko's address book, which contained her home address. The boys would use this information to their advantage and threatened to go to her parents' home and kill Junko's family if she didn't cooperate. 
The group needed a place to hide their victim and would eventually bring her to Monado's family home. Monado's parents were initially told that Junko was the girlfriend of one of the boys, but that lie slowly eased from the narrative as it became obvious Monado's parents nor his brother were going to report the abduction and certainly not the abuse. Living in fear of their son and his gang affiliation, the home became the perfect stage for the gruesome 40 days of hell that lay ahead for their captive. Two days into the abduction, Junko's parents called the authorities and reported her missing. It was around this time the boys convinced Junko to call her parents and convince them to call off the authorities. They coached her on what to say and they listened. She explained that she had just run away, that she was fine, and she was just at a friend's home. Her parents, believing their wholesome and genuinely wonderful daughter, informed the authorities and called off the search. They had no idea that this would be the last time they heard from their daughter. At the time of her capture, Junko had no possible way of knowing that she not only would not survive her captivity, but that her story would become the most heinous crime Japan and most of the world had ever known. Eager to climb ranks within the gang, Miyano invited members over and encouraged them to unleash whatever hell they had within them on an innocent and pure Junko. Within days, she had been raped numerous times. Twelve men in total victimized the child on one particularly harsh day. Yet it was reported that roughly 100 men would rape Junko throughout her captivity, bringing her assault to nearly 500. Part of the group's humiliation tactics was to keep Junko naked at all times. Her pubic hair had been burned off and she was forced to dance and masturbate in front of the boys in company. Even when Minato's parents visited and witnessed the ever-deteriorating child, they continually failed to render aid. In the dead of winter, Junko would be forced to sleep outside on the balcony. The neighbors heard her wails, yet never investigated. Junko would be bludgeoned routinely often hung from the ceiling and used as a punching bag for the boys and various men. Fists were optional as the group utilized golf clubs, bamboo sticks, and metal rods to strike her. Shortly after being abducted, Junko could no longer breathe through her nose. Her sinuses were crushed and filled with blood. They would drag Junko down from her binds and throw her to the ground routinely, slamming the heavy weights they often used onto her abdomen and limbs. While it is reported that they did initially give Junko a small ration of food, water, and milk, it is also known that they transitioned to forcing her to drink her own urine and live cockroaches for their entertainment. In a short time, Junko became unable to hold down any offerings and would immediately vomit upon being forced liquids. Her internal organs were irrefutably destroyed by the continual beatings and abuse. This would enrage the group, who would retaliate by dousing Junko's arms and legs in lighter fluid and lighting her on fire. The reported abuse that took place included melting hot wax over Junko's eyes and inserting various objects into her vagina and anus. Some reports noted skewers, bottles, scissors, lit fireworks, and a hot light bulb that was still on. On this occasion, the light bulb was manipulated inside Junko until it burst. This rendered her internal anatomy destroyed and caused Junko to be unable to urinate or defecate. Junko's eardrums would be ruptured after the group continually set off lit fireworks in her ears. They would later remove Junko's left nipple with a pair of pliers and routinely burned her genitals and eyes with cigarettes and lighters. The bedroom Junko was held captive in was upstairs from the restroom, and toward the end of the reign of terror, Junko spent an hour, unable to walk, crawling down the stairs to get herself to it. This slow-moving and ever-deteriorating state of their hostage infuriated the boys, who would further punish Junko. Her face, no longer recognizable, Lost were her round and youthful cheeks and beautiful doe eyes and bright smile. A pungent smell came from her now frail and broken frame, 
She had lost her appeal, and now she was reduced to a subhuman punching bag. Layers of burns and injuries, lacerations, and breaks covered Junko from head to toe, causing the smell of decay to emanate from her. Not once did Minato's parents alert authorities, yet the police were called twice during the 40 days of Junko's abuse, torture, and eventual death. The first call came from a juvenile that was invited to the home to partake in the abuse of Junko. So traumatized by what he had witnessed, he immediately went home, told his brother what he had seen, and from there the authorities were called. It is reported that they went to the home where Junko was being held and took a verbal response from Minato's parents that everything was fine and that no girl was residing there. Taking Minato's statement as well as truth, they dismissed this call and never once revisited the home. The second call came from Junko herself after she acquired a phone and called the police. When the call was connected, the boys discovered Junko and immediately compensated the phone and punished her severely. The authorities called back and were again reassured that everything was fine. They never formally followed up with that call. In Junko's living nightmare, her body never quit. That fighting spirit inside of her that had set her on a path for success in life was now an autopilot and seeing her through this darkness. While she begged her captors to kill her, her soul never wavered. She shone brighter in those 40 days than all of her abusers combined. They tried as they might to dim this light, yet it was unreachable to the darkness within them. At this point, Junko was declining rapidly. She would spend hours confined to a freezer or thrown onto the bedroom floor. Her brain had shrunk in size and her body was riddled with breaks, burns, and lacerations. Her organs had begun to fail. Conflicting reports state that on this particular Wednesday, the boys challenged her to a game of Meihong, a Japanese solitary type of game. Junko, in her diminished state, beat the group at this game. It is also transcribed in court testimony that the group had come home after losing money in such a game and took their anger out on a depleted Junko. So enraged by this, they enacted a brutal and final assault on Junko, which was comprised of her yet again being forced to drink her own urine, with Stan being hit and beaten with various objects, and at one point being kicked with such force, her frail body was catapulted backward, where she would hit her head on a piece of furniture and immediately start to experience a seizure. Junko would not regain consciousness even after being yet again doused in accelerant and lit on fire. Junko took her final breath on January 4th, 1989. In a fury of self-preservation, the boys dumped a mutilated, starved, beaten, and broken Junko into a large 55-gallon drum along with a tape of her favorite show. This act was later deemed as an effort to keep Junko's spirit from haunting them. The drum was filled with cement and then buried in an industrial park. The boys gleefully assumed they had gotten away with their crimes. Just a short two weeks later, they would be proven false, as Miano sat in an interrogation room being questioned. He had been brought in along with Agora for questioning about another gang rape that had taken place recently. Interestingly enough, this woman was assaulted during Junko's captivity and utilized for pleasure once Junko had deteriorated and the group had lost interest in her sexually. While the woman escaped and reported the incident, the investigation would find the assailants just two weeks too late for Junko. During their questioning, Miano was asked about a murder that had taken place recently. Law enforcement suspected he and his group in this crime, yet the case involved a woman and a boy. Miano, unaware of this detail, assumed Agora had told them about Junko and that was the case that they were referencing. He told them where they could find Junko's body and he did so before realizing that they were all talking about different cases. This misstep would lead the authorities to Junko's remains and subsequently solve a case that they didn't even know that they had. Junko's body would be exhumed, and DNA evidence contained within the tomb would link all four original suspects as well as numerous other men. 
Jonko could finally rest as this horror was brought to light and Japan was rocked with the details that emerged. Unfortunately, this didn't mark the end of Junko's suffering. She would yet again be let down, and this time by the criminal justice system, and we would find out that more protection was granted for the criminals in this case than ever provided for Junko and the former victims of this group. Without giving these kids too much attention, I will briefly outline the sentencing, and I'll encourage you to do your own research and get just as pissed as I am about this outcome. All four boys pled to lighter sentences, refusing to acknowledge their role in Junko's death and stating her dying was both unattended and accidental. Mayana received the harshest sentence of 17 years, which was later, during an appeal, increased to 20. Wontanabe received 4 to 7 years, Manado 5 to 9 years, and Nogura 8 years in juvenile detention. It is said that their light sentencing hinged on their youth, yet it's also suspected that their gang affiliation played a role. Their identities were carefully protected from the media per the law at the time, yet in an act of beautiful solidarity to Junko, one media outlet leaked their images and their names to the public. By the time they were in their 30s, all four were released. Monado's parents and brother, who lived in the home, were never charged, yet they were ordered by the courts to pay Junko's parents $425,000 as a compensation. This required them to sell their family home. Junko was finally laid to rest on April 2, 1989, just one month after she was set to graduate from high school. Her parents were presented with a diploma of completion for Junko. Also in attendance, the employer Junko had planned to work for after she graduated. They presented her parents with a uniform, which they lovingly placed in their daughter's casket prior to burial. Agura's mother would later vandalize Junko's grave in retaliation, stating that the girl had ruined her precious son's life. Because of the continual vandalism by the suspect's parents, Junko yet again had to be exhumed and moved. Unable to obtain the rest that she so desperately deserved, she was moved thousands of miles from her home to Houston, Texas, and more specifically, the Paradise North Cemetery in Harris County, Texas. Before closing out, I want to touch on Junko's fighting spirit. It's clear throughout this episode, yet I think a dedicated moment to it is kind of in order. While an entire school feared this group and a town remained tormented by them, Junko refused to entertain that. She didn't lead her life from a place of fear, and she instead stood firmly in her conviction. Even with her life literally on the line, she didn't appease them. This magic within her infuriated these boys, and if they couldn't obtain the light within her organically, they wanted to snuff it out of Junko forcibly. And the beauty of all that is that they didn't. She's finally resting in peace. Her story is being shared far and wide, like with you today. And I think we can bet our asses she's definitely haunting them. I encourage you to research whether men are now as they have offended again and they continue to be the absolute scum of the earth that they were clearly born to be. In saying that, I hope you enjoyed my first episode and I encourage you to also comment, lend some feedback on my Instagram, or if you prefer, you can email me directly at milesofmurder at gmail.com. Be safe and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.